Hey everyone, welcome to the Urban Tech Podcast. I'm John Tomey, the founder of Urban Tech and your guide to the intersection of cities and tech. Let's dive in. This week for Urban Tech, I spoke with Dr. Anya Yemrazik. Anya is a cognitive scientist who's focused on design and its role in physical and digital environments. Anya and I originally met when I was working as a communications consultant for a tech company called Breather. Breather is a flexible office provider similar to WeWork. Anya was a researcher working to find ways for Breather to help its customers increase their employee productivity. She conducted studies on things like lighting, audio and acoustics, and air quality and how those areas affected a person's productivity in a space. I always appreciated Anya's unique lens for design. In the conversation, we talk about design and its roles in digital tools, how it is used in spaces to increase utility, how design is a key piece to everything Airbnb does, and also a lot more. I hope you enjoy. So thank you so much for doing this, taking the time. You're honestly one of my favorite people who thinks about design because your perspective is so different. I'd love just to start at high level. If you could just summarize how maybe you think about design and what a common theme is. And I know you look at a few different areas, the built environment and also at digital tools. So what are some of the ways that you're thinking about it? Yeah, so I'd say the products we use, the tools we use, and the spaces we inhabit impact our experience. So that means our thoughts, our feelings, and our behavior. And so what my role is to understand how that occurs and to optimize experience. So when people are occupying a space or when they're using a tool, to make sure that those products or tools are doing what we intend them to do. And so I think there's two parts to that. First, applying existing research. So we have a ton of research from cognitive and behavioral science that could be applied to these problems that in a lot of cases isn't being applied, which I think is sad and should be fixed, as well as doing specific research, for example, a new product or to test how a product or a space is working. That's awesome. I'd love, and maybe I should have started with this, but what does exactly cognitive science mean? I know when I read it, it sounds super cool. I know it deals with the brain, but maybe Mm -hmm. in design and how it plays in, that would be super helpful for Mm -hmm. the audience. Sure. So cognitive science is a study of the mind. Super cool. My PhD research was about understanding analogy and metaphor. So how people see relationships between situations and how we can highlight those similarities, which is a big part of creativity. And more broadly, I understand how people reason, how people think, how memory works, how language works. And I think people often talk about designing from first principles. I think cognitive science is actually a great application of that. So the first principles of how people work and how the mind works. So I see a lot of applications to if you're designing a new tool, how do you make it understandable? How do you make it in line with the mental models that we have? How do you enhance people's thinking through a tool? And the same goes for spaces or products. I love that because and I think this is something I found when I was working with you and after having done comms for a lot of design work and done the aspirational eight ways to improve your office space or your make your apartment look cool. I love the more nuanced kind of way and the lens that you brought to the design where you're thinking about it from such a, I don't know, just deeper way than just let's make this look cool. Let's make this functional. Let's get utility out of it. Yeah, thank you. And I think oftentimes we gravitate to things that are beautiful because beauty is often a shorthand for functionality. So for example, in nature, some of the most beautiful objects or creatures or whatever, life forms are also really 
beautiful and, and have a specific function. So oftentimes I think we just go for that shorthand. If it's going to be beautiful, it's going to work. But when we're creating the things, the products, oftentimes it doesn't go like that. So something could be very beautiful, but, but not serve the purpose that it, it's intended to have. That's awesome because as someone who's trying to, I wouldn't say I have the best design eye in the world, but I try to think through the utility of design yeah. and more of the urbanism elements of design that, and how it folds in the cities and how cities can become better places to live. And it's super important. So I love all that. I know a lot of the same themes that you research crossover between the built world and the digital world, but could you maybe talk a little bit about how cognitive thinking and the approach of design is different or similar between those two sides? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think we increasingly live our life both online and in a physical space, but there are some important differences. So I think the biggest one is that the physical world is really annoying in comparison to the digital world. So the digital world is designed to be super reactive, and I think we've come to expect that. The physical world isn't, and I think that's where the future of the physical world is that it should be more reactive and it should be more integrated. But right now, we have these frustrations with the physical world. I think the other thing is that it's a lot easier to iterate on a digital product. So maybe it's not easy, but it's certainly easier to scrap everything and start from scratch. Once you've built a building, you're not going to tear it down because there was a flaw. And so I think the importance of research is in some ways placed at different points of the development cycle for physical and digital products. So for physical products, there has to be a lot of thought before the thing is built. You can't really iterate. You can evaluate how it works after the fact and learn from it for the next product, but you should really front load all of that research into understanding how people are going to use that space and whether they will benefit from it. Versus for a digital product, you could start with some idea and start testing it and iterating and develop it through that iteration. And so I think that process is really different and you can learn more as you're working on it. Oh, and I think that iterative nature of for the tech and software side, I'm forgetting the name of the big documentary that was on Netflix, the trends and kind of ways design has been used to make products more sticky and addicting. Mm -hmm. It's not all good and bad, but design plays a crucial role no matter what. And certainly the people who are building tools are always thinking and the best product minds design is at the core of everything. Yeah. And I think maybe that's a theme that I saw a lot in the Sidewalk Labs, for example, mm -hmm. the Quayside project in Toronto, which actually felt to me like hubris coming from yeah. the software side, where it was this idea that you could iterate really quickly, that you could iterate the physical world as you would the digital world, which I think if you're coming from a world where we're always this kind of iteration, that's a common mindset to apply, but you're not going to change the orientation of a building after it's built. And so while there were some elements that I could see how they would be more responsive than traditional elements, in a lot of these cases, I think the idea of iterating on these large-scale projects isn't actually possible and you're selling a vision that's not at all realistic. Yeah. First off disclosure for me, my first job out of college, I was doing comms work for Sidewalk Labs. But I think that's a totally fair assessment and definitely something that is a fair critique. I think it'll take time before... I think the tech side is still figuring out how to communicate honestly with the urbanism and design side. I think it's there's a lot of tension between those groups and you can see it in transportation, you can see it in city government. And that's something I hope that urban tech is trying to hopefully do is connect those two areas, but it's there and I'm not going to acknowledge that it's that. For sure. And I think we should have more responsive elements in the built environment, but I think it has to be done really thoughtfully and not just apply the exact same framework in the same 
process because it's just not going to work. No, for sure. I'd be curious. I know I asked a little bit about the difference between design and the digital world versus design in the built world, but what type of elements are different when you think about design in the workplace or design in your home? So the goals are very different when you're thinking about those two spaces. These kind of spaces should support different behaviors. So for work, the kind of behaviors we're interested in are, for example, collaboration, teamwork, creativity. Yes, it's good if you can relax at work, but you don't want to relax to the same degree that you would in your living room. And then I think for the home, it's about family, in some cases, relaxation, restoration, really depends on what the goals of the person inhabiting the home are. So that should actually be um, a lot more specific. There's research that depending on people's personality, for example, if you're more extroverted or introverted, the design of your living room changes. So that's a consideration that's really important versus for work, you should be designing for the task you have in mind. So whether that's brainstorming or a strategy session or some sort of individual work, that design of the space should reflect those needs of that. I know that was something I heard you talk about a lot when you were working with Breather. It's something that I feel like you see in co-working and places like that. Spaces optimized for meetings or of quote unquote like war room for strategy and planning, all those like optimized spaces. So it's I just love thinking about how it's a little bit different from like how we design our intentional spaces in our homes. Because I, I try to design my space in my own apartment to be productive, but also relaxing. And now that I work from home, it's I don't even know how to begin to start combining that or how you are intentional with that. I'm curious, has is uh, the work from home revolution kind of, do you think it's going to change the internal design or what are you seeing? Yeah, I think in a couple of ways. So first, the idea that people want a separate space in their home to work that's more optimized for work. I think that's going to be important. And a lot of people are already creating that on their own as much as they can. I think another consideration is there are elements in a workplace that are there to make workers work better. For example, ergonomic furniture, that's something that companies provide in part because you're going to get a wrist injury if you're in a bad position and you can focus better if you have this nice furniture, but maybe you don't have that at home. Are there going to be lawsuits where workers from home are suing the company because they've gotten an injury. I've seen some articles from lawyers preparing for that. And I wonder if that's going to change where somehow work has more effect on your home if you're working from home, where maybe you get a kit of items that you should put in your workspace, or at least to have that offer to give people the opportunity to have that to make the company not responsible. I'm not sure whether that will happen, but that could be a a kind of a curious side effect. And I think also as people can be further away from city centers or maybe only commute in once a month or a couple times a week, then the structure of the home will change as well with people wanting to have more outdoor space or to have a bigger home. Uh, And you can have your bigger home office at home, for example. That's all stuff as someone who is, I feel like this is my first apartment that I really put a ton of intention to since I moved from New York. So like during COVID, thinking about how to maximize productivity. Yeah, I guess another thing is that there are certain elements that as people are universal, for example, 
good air quality, good water yes. quality, those are going to be important everywhere. So I think there are certain physiological needs that we have that no matter where we are, those are important. Yeah, those are two great ones that I feel are so easy to miss. But I remember you doing research on the importance of air quality in the office space. And I was blown away. I was like, wow, this is so important. You're sitting in an office all day, breathing unclean air that's affecting your productivity and focus. Like this should be number one. Yeah, we were doing work on combinations of environmental factors as well, because sometimes people think that the air quality is poor when it's actually a combination of other environmental factors that are affecting them. So I think there's interesting uh, interactions between all of those environmental factors. For sure. Kind of switch gears just a little bit. Big company, given its IPO news, is Airbnb right now. And it's one that I love thinking about. It's one of my like favorite kind of companies in the space just because of how much of an influence it's had and how it's created a category with home sharing. But Given the founding story with Brian and Joe being design students, design is really at the core of everything Airbnb does and still does. So I'd love if you had just any thoughts as someone who thinks about design, anything specific to Airbnb that you'd want to share? Sure. So first, I'm definitely a longtime user. I checked today and my first booking was in 2013. So maybe I'm not in the first cohort, but I've certainly been using it a long time and it's definitely what I would prefer to use whenever I go on vacation. And I like the experience of getting to inhabit different people's homes. And I think the design of the digital experience is great. It's very consistent. It's I love the app. I like communicating to hosts through the app. I like the consistency. But then as soon as you leave the digital experience, the consistency stops. So you have to do a lot of work in understanding the reviews and understanding what other people have written in order to understand what that experience might be like. You have to look at the pictures. You have to check the reviews about whether people said that, for example, the furniture changed or there's a lot of noise or any of these other factors. So the physical experience is outside of the scope of Airbnb and can be really different from space to space and really different from expectation. And you're also relying on other users to provide vital information in order for you to understand what that experience would be like. So it's interesting that the structure of it is so clearly designed and easy to use. But at the same time, there's so many elements that are left to external influence. I think that's a very interesting combination. Yeah, no, and I think that's a great point because I've been reading a ton of the stories and about how obviously during COVID and the pivots that Airbnb had to make a lot of the longer term stuff and big vision stuff, like it has had to get shelves, but it seems like the stuff like experiences and some of the other big ideas are some ways trying to remove friction from the entire experience. It's, they've figured out how to do it on one part. But like you said, like as someone who's booked Airbnbs and had great experiences and terrible experiences, there's a lot of variability in it that they certainly are incentivized, I think, to figure it out. Yeah. And I think people, what people will remember is not the digital experience. If you stay at a really terrible Airbnb, you're not going to be like, it was terrible but I loved booking. No one's going to say that. It's really a holistic experience. You can't break it apart. And so I thought it was interesting, the fact that when I checked recently, for example, hotels are now on Airbnb. Sonder is now on Airbnb. Yeah. And there's the premium, I forget what it's called, also super hosts. Mm -hmm. These are all categories to try to give people the idea that the physical experience will have will be up to a certain standard. And so I think it's interesting that they're trying to impose it through these 
categories because otherwise there's really no way to know whether it's going to be what you expect. I know. It's something that is so interesting. And I think there's a lot of longer term reputation stuff that Airbnb is still figuring out and is doing, I think, the ethos that they approach all this stuff is with their best intentions and always trying to figure it out. But I think when you're innovating and you create a new category and are at that scale, it's you have a lot of hard things to figure out. So I, I love that perspective. Yeah. And I think it's so interesting too that people are having longer stays through Airbnb and with more remote work, the fact mm-hmm. that you could go somewhere for a month and stay somewhere and work from there. And the fact that they are moving into even longer stays mm-hmm. is super interesting. But then the information that you display becomes even more yeah. important because if you go somewhere for a weekend and it's not great, that's fine. But if you go somewhere for a month and the physical experience sucks, then you're really in trouble. All stuff that Urban Tech will be watching and hopefully we'll get to talk to you again about when it's a little bit more clear after the excitement of the IPO and the longer term market stuff settles down. But I'd love to use this as a chance to segue to hear a little bit about the work you're doing with Composer. I know obviously I saw it in our friend Packy McCormick's newsletter and I've seen some of that. So I'd love just if you share something about that. For sure. So At Composer, we're building a portfolio management platform that lets people build, test, and manage automated investment strategies. And so the idea here is to give regular retail investors a powerful tool to improve the way that they invest. And so I think here we've touched on the cognitive science element. I think the cognitive science element runs all throughout it. So oftentimes the tools that we use and the products that we use help expand our minds and help expand what we can do. And so in this case, I'm doing research and strategy to help develop this product and to help it be a product that helps people make better decisions, to make better investing strategies, and to really see their portfolio in a more cohesive and creative way, also to have more fun with investing. I think that's something... FinTech is not something I know a ton about, but it's something I keep my eye on because the way people think about money and the future of banking is all stuff that impacts people who live in cities pretty heavily. And I think there's a lot of great work being done. So I'm curious how thinking about design from the angle of fintech or thinking about like services, how would you say it's different from maybe like a real estate company trying to provide services? I don't know if that's probably not a great way to frame Mm -hmm. that question, but I'm just trying to see how maybe there's something unique to design, I guess, in fintech that's maybe different to design compared to real estate, hospitality, what's important there? Yeah, that's an interesting comparison. So I'm trying to think, I guess the biggest one would be customization. So with a lot of more robo advisors, you are giving this black box money and it's investing it for you and you're getting a return, but there's really not much that you're doing other than setting maybe a few parameters. So this is more about giving people tools and knowledge to creative and come up with their own strategies. In this analogy, maybe it would be like a multifunctional space that helps you come up with something versus just consuming a package. So just to give you one specific example. So for example, I don't want to invest in fossil fuels. So I have ETF that's like the S&P minus fossil fuels. But what if there's another company that perhaps I have feelings about that I wouldn't want to invest in? There's not really a tool right now where I could take the S&P and take out all of the ones with fossil fuels and any others that I don't like but still have it have the same structure. And so this is something that you could do with this tool, which personally I would definitely use. I think those were really the main questions that I had. I guess where I get to the last kind of 
final question. Is there anything I should have asked you or anything in the conversation that you thought of that would be worth sharing? I guess the one tie-in that I thought of is that, so I have a newsletter about research and design. And one of the topics that I recently covered was about IPO names and profitability. Mm -hmm. And so I thought that could tie in with the Airbnb thing and Composer. So basically the findings are that companies with more pronounceable names tend to perform better on the first day post IPO. And that holds both for the name as well as just the ticker. And so I'd be curious. I I don't know what Airbnb's ticker will be, but I wonder how pronounceable it will be. Obviously, Airbnb is a big enough name where people know it. But in general, if you can pronounce it, people go into it the first day. And so that also ties in with the composer functionality in that I imagined that I could make uh, a strategy which just looks at the pronounceability of upcoming IPOs and invests in those that are easy to pronounce and then sells the first day, like automating that. I think that would be pretty and a creative use of research. That is honestly so interesting and the type of fun stuff we love to share in urban tech because that is like something when you, I think about language and I think a lot of investment stuff is a lot more storytelling than people ever want to give it credit for. You're telling a story to Wall Street, you're telling a story about your business. Pronunciation of names and stock tickers is something that factors into all of that. So that's super cool. Where can people go and subscribe to your newsletter? Where else can they find your work? Yeah, you could go on my website, which is onyamrazik.com. My newsletter is called Minding Design, so it's just on the homepage there. And my Twitter is Anya Jam. Awesome. This is great, Anya. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much. I hope you liked my conversation with Anya. She really got me thinking about how I'm going to try and think about design in a more nuanced way as I look at companies in 2021 and start to break down new startups. One final ask before I go, please continue to share the Urban Tech newsletter and podcast with friends, family, and colleagues. Anyone who could benefit from learning about how tech is changing our cities more and more every day. Thanks, and I'll talk to you soon.